The track ahead of us was a white scar on the heath-smothered quartzite. It gleamed in the January heat. We set out from the campsite as early as we could. The pad quickly left a dusky glade and dragged us out into the open moorland. We would see no more shade for the rest of the walk, and it would soon be 30 degrees. We camped by a giant oblong boulder at the base of the range, something that had been knocked off a mountain slope long ago. As soon as we arrived at that spot, we peeled off sweat-starched clothes, boots that felt like clags of bog that had fixed themselves to our feet. As we went to fill up water from a copper-coloured trickling creek, we noticed that another tent had been wedged in the bushes not far off. Bush etiquette insists that you say good day from a distance and reluctantly wave. The reluctance as well is part of the etiquette. But in the end, we got talking to the bloke submerged in that tea tree scrub. And he turned out to be quite nice. Not just some tourist who'd seen a hypersaturated picture of the range on the internet and decided he had to come to take the exact same photograph. He was on a quest to see an emu wren. And he'd been out this way before. Not up on the jagged ridge, but in the valley. All along the buttongrass plains. Studying under Dr Bowman. I'd heard that name before. He was a fire ecologist. And in Dr Bowman's course, they researched the fire history of this neighbourhood. A small but significant part of Tassie's vast southwest. It had been a hot summer. Some of the farms out my way looked like deserts. We'd been at a music festival, and it was hard work to not get dehydrated and sunburnt, to keep from shriveling up into pink sultanas. The forecast ahead was for searing weather, a series of sizzling days. Perhaps we'd have postponed the walk for another time if it wasn't for the fact that my companion was leaving Tassie, indefinitely as it happened. So we'd scrape ourselves up that ragged range, tripping along the goat track, without a skerrick of shade throughout the days the reflective rock radiating sunlight back up into our eyes, the snow-white quartzite willing to send us blind. The next morning we scrambled up that stony ascent, a path made of bits of broken bone, sweating bucket loads from the first few steps, gushing like stuck pigs. But we made it to the ridge and scurried along, ate lunch with our backs to a large rock that at any time could offer cover to a small percentage of our bodies. 
Mid-Arvo we drop down to a picture-perfect lake, fringed with vegetation, dark and set into uneven stone walls. The fire ecologist scrambled down a bit after us, and after each party had eaten their respective dinners at a respectful distance, we reconvened by the lake and looked at a bruise-coloured cloud that spread over the country around us. Could even rain, one of us had said. It hadn't rained for weeks. It would have come as a relief. And indeed a few drops drifted down. And then there was thunder. Which rumbled around the amphitheatre we were in. The arc of mountains curving round the black tarn. And with it, lightning, which seemed so severe without the rain. We climbed out of that depression in the morning. From the ridge we could see a plume of black smoke rising to the north like a cobra at the snake charmer's call. Far away you might think it was a signal of peace. But I knew that up close the flames would be chewing through the bush down there. Oil-rich sedges, fibrous branches and flammable leaves would spur the fire along the moorland. There would be great noise, much movement. Because fire isn't sedentary by nature. It's a traveller, a rapacious colonist. It comes like the golden horde across the plains. The wind was not pushing the fire towards us. But perhaps it would before too long. We let the fire ecologist catch up to us and asked him what he thought. He wasn't anxious but he was attentive. And that day was also spent on the high ridge line, the narrow road of hacked up stone, hundreds of metres above the burning lowlands. And again we dropped down to an inky lake in the afternoon, the fire out of view. We stripped off. The water was soothing. Our bodies browned in the tannin-stained water. We strung up the fly of our tent to make some shade, and we played a game with a cloth frisbee I'd brought along. I lit the billy and began to prepare peppermint tea, but could hear the whisper of a helicopter's rotors from the other side of the mountains. And so I blew out the flame of my metho stove. I think we should start packing up, I said. I reckon our walk is over. We had ten minutes, then the chopper would return for us, the park ranger said. And ten minutes later we were throwing our backpacks into a bag rack and climbing in. And in the air, we could suddenly see for miles all around, and there was smoke everywhere. 
rising from different spot fires around the region. The lightning had cut like a scythe across the west and south of the island. It would take weeks for all the flames to be snuffed out. We got dropped off back at my car and were told to hit the road immediately. And it was instantly obvious why we shouldn't dilly-dally. There were two fire fronts about to converge on the gravel road out of the National Park. I think if we'd got back to the car half an hour later, they wouldn't have let us drive through the burning landscape. We were able to put it all behind us, geographically. But the fires were to move south and burn out the moraine we'd planned to hike down at the end of our excursion. Years later, I would see it. A swathe of brown that climbed up the seam of heath. I returned on another bloody hot day. Some things had changed. My companion was on the other side of the world. Neither of us were any longer so naive about plans to hike at the height of summer. But still, even as I walked away from the car park there, there were rumours of blue smoke over the southwest. Another moor burning. We've been lucky though, most of these past summers. So far, we've been lucky. Here I am then, in the train carriage once again, and all of a sudden it's summer. Flowers are strewn around the place, 
the birds are making a real racket. And I am back in my cosy train carriage shack after spending much of the year abroad. Far away from home, I found once more that absence does make your heart feel more fondness towards some of the things that you can take for granted. Although for four years now I've remained so thoroughly astonished to have the good fortune to live in this little forested spot that I've never really let myself forget how beautiful it is. Day by day I appreciate being here more and more. It never gets old. The chance to understand it more deeply with each new thing I learn helps me keep a connection that seemed to stretch even halfway across the earth in completely opposite seasons. I had fun while I was away, but it was bloody good to come back as well. Quickly enough, I reverted to what counts as a routine in my train carriage life. The first thing that happens every morning is that I put a pot of water on the boil and pour it over coffee. And I pull a collection of poems down and sit cross-legged in the morning sun, that blazing orb that even from such a distance makes life on earth possible. And after that I go out and walk barefoot on the grass and poke about the forest looking to see what changes come with each day, what's growing, who's doing the pollinating, what all the critters are up to. After some months away, I was intrigued to inspect a particular spot on the grass around the train, where I once had a bonfire on a winter's day. There was a huge amount of material to burn, I'd been lopping off branches and dragging bits of dead wood, piling them up for a special occasion. In the end, the special occasion was a sunny Tuesday afternoon, when no one was around and I had a nice stubby that I wanted to sip. So I set that mound of wood and leaves ablaze. It was a fierce and fragrant fire. It sent sparks fizzling out in the cool air. And later it left an empty patch of burnt ground, which has since become a source of scientific scrutiny as I watch to see what grows back there. That bonfire was directly underneath the biggest and perhaps most beautiful tree in the woods here. A white gum which is Eucalyptus viminalis for those who prefer to hear a Latin name. It bends elegantly over the clearing and is habitat to countless birds and insects. I guess I shared my Tuesday afternoon with that tree. Eucalypts, of course, love a bit of fire. Indeed, they need it. A bushfire gives them the chance to drop their seeds into ash which is rich in nutrients. 
it can also clear out a bit of space for them, which eucalypts like because they tend to grow faster to outcompete rival species in the race for life-giving light. This is also why eucalyptus species often toss off so much stuff, bark and twigs and flammable leaves. As they've evolved, they've been advantaged by abetting the conditions for fire. And you may have seen that when a eucalypt survives a bushfire, it sometimes sprouts leaves all over its trunk, turbocharging photosynthesis, powering up. This general adaptation is not specific to my part of the world, of course. Paleobotanists suggest that plants were first evolving to join with fire about a hundred million years ago. In the US, you'll find plenty of fire-adapted ecosystems. There are grasslands in South Africa that use the same technique. In fact, a study I read about certain northern Finnish forests show that there too, without regular burning, ecological relationships can go a bit out of whack. All environmental interactions are curious and intricate. But the story of plants and fire is a particularly intriguing yarn. Extremely hot fires will kill almost everything, though. Such combustions can burn the soil as well, even to the point of sterilising it. And this is what's happened in some parts of Australia in recent years. Fires like these occur when forests get totally dried out from lack of rainfall, but also where the fuel load has built up too much, where there's been too big a gap between fires and piles of vegetative debris have built up in the meantime. In Australia, as elsewhere, all those branches and leaf litter were previously burnt on a fairly frequent basis by Aboriginal people. They burnt to create hunting grounds. In the aftermath of low-intensity fires, grazing marsupials would visit to snack on the green pick that grew, and so the hunters knew when there would be a high population of roos and wallabies to target. It's also not surprising that where native habitat asks for fire, long-standing human communities have come up with techniques and traditions for bringing it in a way that is useful to themselves within those ecosystems. This adds another layer to the intricacy of those relationships I mentioned. In some traditional communities, folklore about fire has been handed down for generations. As for me, I feel my knowledge is a little undercooked. I look around me at the stands of trees, with their dense, combustible undergrowth, and I wonder what it would look like if Aboriginal people had been passing through seasonally as they did for centuries. There hasn't been a fire through here for years, although there are signs of something in the not-too-distant past. For instance, on the hill above the train, some stringy bark trunks have char marks on them still. 
Lately I've been taking the chance to burn whatever I can in my little fire pit. All the windfall and dead wood. It's nice to have a fire to sit by in the evening, if nothing else. Some hot coals to cook spuds on. But what I do amounts to little ecologically. And with threats of fire ahead, this brings little peace of mind. A spark landing in this scrub in the season ahead would probably become a keen blaze pretty quickly. And I have to say that my bushfire plan is pretty simple. Get in the car and skedaddle. There aren't many roads out of here. And there's a lot of flammable bush. It would be bloody sad to lose this train I rent. But I'm not equipped to defend it. In the meantime, I pay attention to minute things. Like how a lack of fire preferences certain species. It seems that in the space I burnt a while back, it's now mostly weeds that are enjoying the chance to claim that open ground. I pull these up, pop them back in the fire pit. Later tonight I'll light it and sit there with a glass of wine. If nothing else, the energy keeps on cycling around. For now it's in a way that's somewhat within my control. But I do know that fire doesn't always acquiesce to being tamed. I once watched a man fall into a fire pit. It was my cousin's wedding. The fool who fell was a good friend of mine. He'd been buggerizing with that fire all night long. First he'd put a portable speaker into it just to test the claims that it was indestructible. It was. Then I saw him dancing in the flames, in leather shoes. Finally, at around 3am, he simply stumbled forwards into the metal half-barrel in which the logs were burnt. It seemed to happen in slow motion. Although perhaps I'd also just put myself in a condition of being a bit slow-witted. My mate popped up pretty swiftly, all things considered but scars in the form of arcs were cut across his torso. He laughed it all off the next day. He laughs most things off. Somehow he'd scraped through. Not unscathed. He was scathed all right. 
But gee whiz, it could have been worse. Years earlier I'd seen a cremation on the Ganges. I'd arrived in Varanasi without much of a clue of where I was. I was 19 or 20 years old. And I suppose I went to that sacred city because someone said I should. The place was packed, of course. It was hard to get a grasp of its beauty or its significance. If you'd asked me what colour Varanasi's aura was, I might have said brown, like the smoke of a burn-off of swampland. One evening at dusk, I jumped on a cruise down the Holy River. Probably, again, because someone said I should. I was not totally oblivious to the traditions of Indian religions, but it was still quite a shock to arrive at Manikarnika Ghat, where important loads were being dropped off onto the terraced banks. These were dead bodies, clad in simple cotton shrouds, or sometimes silky, colourful saris. They were pulled off small boats on bamboo stretchers, alongside barges laden with sandalwood. The deceased were then laid out on carefully stacked timber and satellite. A priest would pray or chant or sermonise as the flames claimed the flesh. Occasionally on one pyre, a skull or pelvis would fume, like incense holders in the temples. At some point in history, the earrings of a goddess fell where that gat is situated. Since then, hundreds of thousands of corpses have been cremated there. Crooker's dogs, devotees, will travel thousands of kilometres so that they can cark it near that sacred final swimming hole. And once the deceased is barbecued, their souls will apparently fly directly to the other side of things, to moksha, beyond the rat race of karma, and into the realm of universal being. Their bodies, now just a bunch of ashes, are dumped into the murky waters and washed in disintegrating particles towards the ocean. The rest of us, I recalled in Varanasi, are stuck in material existence in the meantime. Crowds milled by the cremation platforms, a small portion of India's millions... All of us would have our own personal apocalypse eventually. For now, our lives were entwined with the elements. The next day I watched people brushing their teeth with water from the Ganges. I wouldn't do that myself. But it seemed like it affirmed life in some ways. There are other ways to look at it. You might say that as a body gets burned, as it turns into wisps of smoke, the atoms from which a human is made get separated, wander off into the atmosphere, change form, 
and become rearranged so that they link up with other operations in the universe. We can say the same for those who choose to be buried, decaying into soil. We become part of the Earth's processes of growth. A person so inclined could easily use these to come up with a spiritual framework that explains life and death. In another ancient tradition, we find the phoenix, a bird that rises from ashes. It's not what I thought on the night that my mate danced his way into a fire pit. I have to admit I wasn't thinking much myself. But sometimes when I see him shirtless, with those few scars like the slashes from a cutlass across his body, I imagine him as that mythical bird transformed by the encounter with the flames. In many cultures, fire has been seen as a purifier. My mates run in with a fire pit. His premature and thankfully inconclusive cremation. It might have, I don't know, taught him a lesson. Doesn't seem like it has, though. He's still as bloody daft as ever. Yet in its own way, that story has taken on something of a mythical status. West Texas, August 2014. A storm had brewed over Big Bend National Park. On the banks of the Rio Bravo, I'd met some strangers who were on an excursion from nearby Texan cities, Amarillo, Austin, San Antonio. The sky caved in, A grey net sagged, dragged along behind the vanguard clouds. Further on, strange metallic structures swayed, flames erupting from them periodically. There were oil fields, multiplying en masse throughout the badlands. I followed my new mates out to a caravan park some miles away, where then the Pabst Blue Ribbon, a brand of beer, began to flow, gushing like petroleum from the tops of the cans. I remember acro-yoga, bluegrass tunes, a clothes swap, some sort of drinking game. All this in the midst of that lightning storm, which eventually moved on, travelling away from us. And once the rain had ceased to pour, we went out into the backyard and loaded up a drum with wood. 
Someone spilt an accelerant all over it. And so the bonfire blazed. The caretaker of the caravan park was a man named Mr. Dean. A cautious-looking bloke who'd only opened the door of his cabin a crack when we'd arrived. But once our little party was well on its way, he joined us, warming his hands on the flames. He was a bit bleary-eyed himself. I think he had whiskey on his breath. So we'd found a means to relax in our presence, and we welcomed him to the circle, slowly making conversation with the reticent old man, until at last he opened up and began to spin a yarn. Let me tell y'all a story, Mr. Dean drawled, inching nearer to the drum. Before a man knew how to control the flames, life was brutal, cruel, and all too brief. But one day a shooting star fell into the empty wasteland round here, and there was an old lady walking round. What the hell she was doing there, I don't know. But she was stooped over and she saw a little fire, still flickering from where that there meteorite had landed. While the old gal said to herself, Don't mind if I do. And she took that fire with her back to her little hut. But some folks are nosy in these parts. Wasn't long before her neighbors caught wind of what she had hidden there, and they come over, didn't they, asking if she wouldn't mind sharing it. And well, she thought she had a right to a bit of privacy, and as is legally defended in the great state of Texas, she told them in no uncertain terms that they should clear on out. Now, I don't know why she was so darn grumpy and greedy about it. She could have shared that fire, I guess, and lost nothing from it. But I believe in property rights, said Mr. Dean. Finders keepers. Neither private citizen nor government ought to be able to take something like that fire off that lady. So I suppose I'm on her side. But you know how it goes. Those goddamn neighbors of hers, they started scheming against her. They held councils out here amongst the cactus and the tumbleweeds, trying to figure out how to get that fire off her. But no one could come up with a smart enough plan. No one, that is, till an opossum piped up. And the opossum said, I'll get that fire and bring it back to y'all. Well, the humans, they wasn't so convinced. Indeed, they got to laughing at the little critter. But the old possum kept insisting, I can do it. I can get that fire. But I tell you what, if I do, then you gotta promise to stop hunting me. Laugh all you like, that little old possum said. But you'll see. Now the way they tell the story, 
the opossum used its cuteness to convince the old lady to let it come close to her fire. Curled up there, that savvy little critter must have seemed so innocent. It's so cold my bones hurt, that there opossum said, and I dare say you and I would give it a little leeway too. So the opossum inched nearer and nearer to the fire, till finally it was so close that it could put the tip of its tail into the burning coals. And at that point, the animal bolted out the door. I'm telling you, its tail was a darn torch, and it ran back to the humans of the village and presented its generous gift. But let me tell you kids this. The villagers, even after all of that, they didn't stop hunting the opossum. So the moral of the story is this. You look out for yourself. You don't trust no one. Well, none of us knew what to say to that. Least of all me. But then Audrey spoke. Audrey was from Austin. She wore her hair in cornrows, and although she was mildly stoned, she hadn't lost a bit of her sharp wit. Not even you, she asked. We shouldn't even trust you, Mr. Dean. Audrey studied literature. Or classics, or philosophy, or art history, or something. Some combination of the lot, perhaps. She was from Austin, after all. Let me tell y'all a story, she said. An oldie but a goodie. She kept the prelude pretty brief. There once was a man named Prometheus, who was a bit of a wily character. And when he got the chance to steal fire from the gods... Well, he did it. He used whatever came into his hands to get the job done. In the end, he hid some smouldering tinder in a humble garden vegetable. If I recall correctly, it might have been broccoli. Maybe it was a beet. Whatever the case, he snuck the flames into his salad, and then he smuggled it out of heaven. And the gods on Mount Olympus, Audrey said, well, they were mighty pissed. But there was a side effect that no one had foreseen. Not Prometheus, not even Zeus. You see, humans were overjoyed to have fire in their hands, at long last. Now we could make cups and plates from clay, and we could even cook a steak. It was like Mr. Dean had said, Without these techniques for making fire, life was short and shitty. But now it all seemed so easy. This new technology made us feel invincible, immortal. A concept that the gods themselves just scoffed at. They knew for sure that we were wrong. But we simply would not believe that we were anything now but superhuman. We were filled with hubris. 
We compared ourselves with those in the heavenly realm and we said, well, they're no better than us. In doing so, our perspective got warped and from then on we refused to pay attention to any impending doom. Like a sick person who refuses treatment, Audrey said. We just keep on doing unhealthy things. And the bad news is, we're going to die. One last fork of lightning flashed out over the plains of West Texas, making the silhouettes of Pump Jack stand out in a stark tableau, like the heads of some megafauna species nodding docilely across the desert. Audrey hadn't exactly lightened the mood. But it was interesting to think of what she'd said. Meanwhile, millions of barrels of oil were being pulled from beneath the earth out there. Black gunk with a yellow tinge that subsequently fueled too much desire, too many demands, mad ideas. Dreams that had spiralled out of control. That all started as nothing more than speculation. A spark. But they had ignited. The whole atmosphere now felt like it might explode. I suspected that Audrey might be right. The blame could not be laid at the feet of Prometheus or possums. But truth be told, we'd let our technologies separate us from the natural rhythms of the world. Something had combusted, even within ourselves.
the night that I moved into the train carriage, now more than four years ago, I had some mates over. We had a little fire out the front. I seem to remember passing a bottle of tequila around the circle. One of my neighbours was here, one of the great characters of my life, a man with a colourful past who can laugh at anything, but who also applies a broad spiritual perspective to every subject imaginable. That night he took advantage of a lull in the conversation to encourage a few people to offer their well wishes on my new life at this new address. Now I'm the sort of yobbo who sometimes finds such ceremonies hokey or embarrassing. But on this occasion, it wasn't so. It felt quite meaningful, in fact. And I remember the moment fondly. Living out here in the bush... Facing a fire season with a few close calls already under my belt. I am a little nervous. The train carriage really is at a dead end, so my bushfire plan is to be one step ahead of things. Actually, I've already stowed some of my valuables, like photo albums and journals, at a house in the suburbs. Somewhere surrounded by so much asphalt and cement that it's hard to imagine how a fire could ever get momentum. But you never know. I have a mate who lived through a catastrophic bushfire. She said there are two types of people in Australia. Those who have gone through that experience and those who haven't. A couple summers back I had a mainland visitor who was clearly in the second camp. One evening, driving back from a pub dinner. I saw a purple-grey pall out to the east of my place. I quickly calculated where it was burning, how far off it was, where the smoke was at its thickest, which direction the wind was coming from. My friend made a one-liner, kind of taking the piss. It was frustrating. She just didn't get it. Then again, what do you do? I choose to live in the bush. I take the risk. With luck, this little train carriage shack stays safe. Yet in truth, I already live with a different mentality. I hold on to everything lightly, expecting that it soon will be gone change is the guarantee. And this has been an attitude of mine for years now. I remember seeing bushfire smoke near my share house when I was 19 or something, and envisioning what would happen if it blew in my direction. It was as if I was intuitively readying myself for the worst case scenario. I now realise that I'm not the only one who has rehearsed this situation, who has imagined their lives being razed to the ground.
and I remember the last summer with big fires. Constantly checking maps, scrutinising the fire services charts with their shaded sections of what was burning and what was already burnt. Looking at the Bureau of Meteorology website, seeing if there was rain about, looking at the arrows pointing which way the wind was going, looking at overlays that showed what vegetation types were found in the places where the fires had gone through, trying to see what might be lost. It is one way to study ecology. I guess we learn the best when it's most urgent. I have noticed that a lot of us are taking crash courses in our local environments now, belatedly realising that we're dependent on them, knowing that soon they'll be changed, damaged, or completely lost. On the plateau there is a single tree that grows in an open mossy moor, the remnant of a stand of conifers that was burnt in the 1960s. A survivor. I have often made a point of visiting that tree. It's a real beauty, but it also has a symbolic meaning for me. It's a species from an ancient lineage, a relic from the good old days of Gondwana land, before the southern supercontinent started breaking apart in the Jurassic era. So it belongs to an era of the Earth's history in which this part of the world was cool and wet, long before the landmass drifted north towards the equator, before the species that make up most of Australia's flora evolved, before wattles and eucalypts and button grass leaned into the flammability of the continent, and the clans of humans who have long lived here also developed their knack for keeping fires in check. This tree on the plateau belongs to a different epoch. In some senses, to put your hands to it is to touch another time. So I've often gone up there and placed my palms on the papery bark of that pencil pine, looked down at its roots sprawling throughout the sopping wet sphagnum moss, and just thought about it, considered the tree, made the most of it being there, made the most of being there with it. Because who knows when it'll be gone. Likewise, upon my return towards the end of spring, I invited a friend around to do a small and simple ceremony, acknowledging the bushfire season. I'm not superstitious enough to really believe that we can hold the fires at bay with mere words or wishes, that my ceremony will protect the forest here. But it can still be nice to perform a ritual, and perhaps it's even psychologically helpful. 
to create a simple artifice in which our attention is drawn to the crucial elements of the world around us. So my maid and I lit a few logs, made a few artistic gestures, mumbled a bit of poetry, and finally threw the leaves of some wine on the embers to finish it off. Not tequila this time, which I think was a wise choice. Eons ago, all around the world, human communities held different ceremonies related to the weather, the seasons. Perhaps they believed the sun wouldn't rise again, the soil wouldn't nourish their crops, the summer wouldn't return without those acts. Unsure of the nature of the future, they took it on themselves to do what they could to appease the elemental forces. It sometimes seems to me that we are back in that place. That despite our technology, our science, our weather forecasts, the irregular changes in our climate have reduced some of us to desperate guesswork. We're almost back to the point of trying to convince the world and its atmosphere that we're ready to work with it. We may well try pretty much anything if disaster comes knocking on our doors. <laughs>